Hello, I'm Sam, or Never Seen Trek, on Twitter. Hello, I'm Patrick, uh, Angiris42 on Twitter, and I've been invited back to this show for some reason. So, hello. Hi, I'm Wolf Simon. I'm Mr. The Saint on Twitter. And this is episode two of the Never Seen Trek podcast. I'll quickly address, um, before we get started, obviously Captain Pikachu is not with us this week. She is going to be the uh, co-host moving forward. Unfortunately, she has exams at the moment, so Patrick has kindly agreed to step in for a couple of episodes uh, just to fill in for her while she's doing those. But other than that, we'll just crack straight on. And the first episode we're going to talk to uh, talk about sorry, today is Day of the Dove. So Only a fool fights in a burning house. <laughs> it sounds like Richard Burton there. Only a fool fights in a burning house. I was going to say, it sounds almost like a line Gandalf would say, but... Um, one thing that was brought up in sort of the replies to the first episode of this podcast was that it might help viewers who've not seen the original series in a while to go over a quick summary of the plot of the episode. So I don't know whether one of you two wants to do that or whether you want me to do that. Possibly get guests to do it. <laughs> um, I can I can take a shot at it. So uh, Day of the Dove, I think one of the uh, quintessential Klingon episodes of these early days. So Kirk investigates a distress call, as he's wont to do, from a human colony. They get there and it's destroyed. Everyone's gone. Um a crippled Klingon ship shows up, um, and the few survivors from its crew beam aboard or beam over and kind of bushwhack Kirk. So his opposite number is Kang, and he thinks that the Federation attacked his ship and crippled it and wants to claim the Enterprise, whereas Kirk and his folks are pretty sure that the Klingon destroyed the colony. And we see in the background this sort of a swirly disco ball of lights, uh, looking very excited whenever the two sides have a conflict. And it sort of devolves. They beam the Klingons over, but then all of a sudden, mysterious things happen. Most of the crew is locked below decks. All of their phasers are transformed into swords, which probably should arouse uh, even more comment than it does. Um, and the Klingons are freed, and everybody's sword fighting each other. Um, and lethal wounds are healed, and it just seems like this conflict is set to carry on into infinity until, as usual, uh, Kirk and Spock think things over and figure out that they're all being made a fool of by this uh, glowing entity. And the episode's finally resolved when they uh, convince uh, first the Klingon commander Kang's wife, Mara, and then with her help, Kang himself, um, that they're all being uh, exploited and they tell the the entity to go pound sand, and that's the episode. I don't think I could have summarized that any better myself. That's pretty perfect summary. Um, what are people's thoughts on this one, then? It's a, I mean, it's a great episode um, for season three, especially. Um, it's uh, TOS uh, has a lot of episodes that deal with the issue of racial prejudice, racial bigotry. Um, as with others, it's it's kind of heavy-handed, um, but that's that's Star Trek: The Original Series, you know. Um, if you want subtle, you don't go for the original series. Um, and and it, it, there's there's some there's some really interesting um, choices, like the the swords, uh, as you pointed out, Patrick. Um, you know, the people are, are kind of nonplussed. Oh, 
<laughs> all the faces are swords now. Huh. How about that? That isn't, you know, that, that isn't the, the item of shock that you'd expect it to be. Uh, they're not very good as defensive weapons. Um, and they also look very much like they're made out of wood and they're spares from the Paramount backlot. <laughs> I, d I did enjoy that the, um, the mysterious space entity that turned all the faces into swords bothered to make sure there was at least one um, claymore for Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... You can end up in the weeds pretty quickly if you try and, and nail down what the thing's powers actually were. Um, in fact, some scenes become kind of uh, tough to analyze because at no time are you actually sure if someone is themselves or being influenced on a greater or lesser level. I mean, they, they, they randomly uh, influence Spock or don't influence Spock, influence Scotty or don't influence Scotty. Sulu seems to be fine throughout. <laughs> yeah, Sulu's a, 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 a damn good guy and all, all that. Um, well, probably George Takei said, yeah, I'm not going to film that. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, probably George Takei said, I'm busy filming something else like he did for half of season three. Mm. <laughs> Um, and Kirk pretend, says that he is affected by it. There's this. Uh, there's a scene about halfway through um, that there's uh, that Spark and and uh, and Scotty are having this this conflict, um, and Scotty is applying the. I've never found um, the racial slurs that are hurled at, at Spock, which seems to be all the time. You know, mm. whether people are explicitly being racist today or not. Spock is always in for some casual racism. Um, but there's a bit where, where, where Scotty and, and Spock are, are in conflict about halfway through. And uh, and then Kirk try, separates them and says, What are we doing? I'm affected too. Now I'm not. <laughs> or words yeah, to that he, effect. He doesn't see, he's just like, I'm affected because I say I am. And you two need to stop. Well, well, I th I think where it comes out, and you know, Shatner was was not a masterpiece of subtle acting at this point in the series. Um, he did have enough pull to you know sort of consistently make sure Kirk was the moral victor, which to be fair, that's baked into the show. Um, but I do think where he lets it show is in his rivalry with Kang. Um, which, again, underscores what great work Michael and Sara is doing in this episode. So the it was originally pitched with, with Kor returning, um, who would have been only the second recurring character in the entire series after Mud, um, and giving that sort of personal uh, edge to matters. And that didn't work out because of uh, the schedule of John Colicos, who he plays He was filming Kor. Anne of the Thousand Days at the time, apparently. Ah, I had um, that down on my trivia sheet. <laughs> with, uh, that would have been with another Star Trek person, then, if, it, if he was filming Anne of a Thousand Days. I believe uh, it said that on the trivia sheet, and I didn't write it down, but yes, I think there was someone else there. Uh, well, uh, Patrick, do you want to have a guess? Jean-Vivre uh, Jean uh, Bougeot was in Anne of a Thousand Days. Sorry, who was? Jean-Vivre Bougeot. The original Captain Janeway. Oh, that's a deep cut. 
But what I what I was building for was uh, it's a real testament to the talent of Michael Ansara um, with his you know his charisma and his presence and his voice, um, and he managed to talk himself onto uh, two of the later spinoffs. Uh, he has guest spots on DS9 and Voyager, which is a unique feat for a uh, for an original series guest star. At and also influenced a uh, character from The Simpsons because The Simpsons will yeah. take from any <laughs> culture. Kang and Kodos. Kang and Kodos, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it, it, it's an interesting episode, though, in terms of sort of what it does with the Klingons and the way it approaches them as not necessarily just a straight-up villain this time around because we see, I think Patrick was saying before we recorded, you see the sort of propaganda that they're led to believe by their leaders and the propaganda that the Federation are led, or humans are led to believe by the Federation. And it's not as black and white as it's been in any other sort of appearance of the Klingons up to that point. Yeah, we got, we got a little bit of what's going to be consistent with the Klingons, the idea that they have this, uh, this hunting tradition and this dueling tradition. Um, you know, so they're sort of, throwbacks in that sense that from the position of Star Trek um, hunting and dueling are not very enlightened things for humans to be doing but it presents it in a light that you know not only are they getting fed this false information about the Federation um, but there is a justification for their sort of aggressive interstellar posture besides just you know we like it when people are hurt you know, that they're having a resource uh, crisis, which actually I'm now realizing gets called back in uh, Star Trek VI, which is my personal favorite Star Trek film. Mm-hmm. It's objectively the best Star Trek film, as proved <laughs> by science. <laughs> I, look for- I look forward to getting to the films to see if I agree with that. Uh, well, I mean, it's not a matter of agreeing, it's proved by science. Look it up in. Fair you, you, just, just you, you, you don't know science. Look it up in a physics book. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh yeah. Um. Yeah. Another, another thing that I know. As this is sort of dipping into the trivia sheet that I've got here as well, to do with the Klingons and to do with sort of the way that they're not as black and white in this episode. This is the only episode of the original series, and in fact, Mara is the only female Klingon in the original series who has any voice lines at all, apparently. Huh. Well, well, yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I did appreciate that there were there were women extras, um, so that Mara wasn't the only Klingon on Kang's, wasn't the only woman on Kang's crew, which would have been an easy thing to miss, and in fact has been missed by other episodes before. Uh, so there is that. Um and, you know, there just haven't been that many Klingon characters yet. Um, and I do think it's, over the many, many years, it's a society where writers have kind of gone back and forth on gender roles and their importance. Um, and we have a lot of female Klingon characters now that we can sort of look at and appreciate and compare. Um, and Mara's kind of interesting still... Not only for being the first one, but for being a uh, for being a scientist mm. uh, rather than a, than a warrior or a politician, which is the lens through which um, we have to look at most of those other characters. 
It's a uh, it's a different uh, characterization of the Klingons overall to what we're we're used to in the TNG era, though. Um, I mean, this is an evolving Klingon characterization from simply being insert bad guy here. Um, that we have that dueling tradition and that hunting tradition, um, and uh, you know maybe the the 19th century um, Prussian aristocrats or something on those lines. Whereas in in the in the TNG era, we see that um, Machiavellian Shakespearean feel to 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 Klingon politics, uh, and there's a more more romanticism to being a uh, to being a warrior um species as such uh and we we do see hunting but that but but stressing stressing oh we have a hunting and dueling tradition um it does it does have a very different feel to the tng era oh absolutely uh yeah i think that's something i'll obviously i've not seen tng yet but something that i'm definitely sort of interested to see is how the klingons are sort of developed and because i know that obviously they, they have to be very different in TNG because they're not always even villains necessarily. <laughs> I mean, are, are, have y'all heard the phrase, I think it comes from TV tropes or something, a planet of hats? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, see, oh, so the idea is that every, you know, alien, to kind of simplify the writing, every alien race kind of has like their one big trait. Right, yeah. Well, so the Klingons are always wearing a hat, but what that hat is changes from uh, era to era and uh, showrunner to showrunner. But where we're definitely seeing, and I, the Prussian aristocrat thing was such an interesting thing to mention because the common thread of the Klingon appearances in the original series, which defined them for many years after that, of course, until TNG rewrote the book on a few things, is they're the Soviets. Um, and they're, they're the old world, their technology maybe isn't quite as good, but they're comparable, um, and they're, they're tough, and they're a real threat, but they're human like us. Um, you you really you really see it. Uh, whereas the mm. Romulans, I think, were presented in a little bit more of an abstract and alien way because they were connected to primarily to one of the established alien races. Whereas the Klingons could be anything, and so it I say it became, but really it was intended that you know they're going to be the Soviet Union to the Federation's United States. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, but to the... Uh, you first, Sam. Oh, no, I was just going to say that, um, obviously, having only experienced the original series so far, I have it has very much been the vibe that I've got from the Federation that it is... It, obviously, it's United Earth, but it feels like Earth under American rule, almost. It's very Americanized in the way that its systems work and everything like that. Yep, and that's just plain provinciality. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's not really a concerted effort to change that until all the way to the modern era, I would say. And this, the, you know, the, there's no... I, I don't know this, because, um, and I've never read this in any of the background materials, um, but there's nothing in the original series canon that refutes the idea that the United Earth is um, Earth under American hegemony, um, and that may well have been the the intention. Um, I mean, there's in I've actually forgotten the episode name, um, but the terrible one. Uh, alternative factor? <laughs> no, the other terrible. Um, 
the um the the terrible one with uh with 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 a, a racist undercurrent um oh omega you... glory omega glory thank you oh yes. my god yeah i would have been here all day <laughs> no, I, that that one stuck in my brain because of how bad it was. Um, yeah, the Omega Glory. I mean, uh, more or less uh, suggests, in fact, that the uh, the the Federation is um, United Earth is is under American hegemony, and there is a a very strong sense also in the original series that the Federation is as I'm afraid I'm going to spoil one line from Star Trek VI um, for you, Sam. Uh, a, uh, a human-only, um, a homo sapiens-only club. Right. Okay. So it's so the Federation has this very uh, has the sense of being uh, a, a human enterprise and perhaps also an American enterprise. I I will emphasize too because uh, I'm I'm in America over here, and y'all are in the UK, which is a little bit the same but also different. You know, whereas we're still kind of patting ourselves on the back over the business with King George. Um, but I can't emphasize enough how much the idea that America eventually rules the world and then the galaxy was not considered controversial or problematic, even by liberals, probably until at least well into the 90s. That doesn't like, surprise me, like, to be honest. Yeah, well, like, you would have told Gene all this, and he'd be like, yeah, what's your point? And, like, the man was basically a communist, but he was still a communist of the uh, the United States should run everything and the Soviets should go to hell persuasion. I mean, it's, let's yeah. just kind of uh, agree here <laughs> that Gene Roddenberry's opinions were one of a kind. Yes, we, That's, yeah. we spent a lot of time on the last podcast on that, and yes, when we can move on. Yeah, um, and we will move on because... I want to try and make sure that we get through this a bit quicker than last time because we took nearly three hours to record. Um, so we'll move on to the next episode shortly. I do just want to go through a couple of bits of trivia that I didn't manage to touch on up to this point. Um, most of the footage of the floating entity thing was recycled footage from Tholian Web, which was shot first, but obviously aired later, as we'll get to later, uh, where they just sort of cut out the floating ghost kirk and put the entity in instead what so you can i think something something that comes up a lot in the trivia that i've got here and that we'll probably talk about a lot in this episode is that you can really begin to see where the budget was being stretched at this point mm -hmm. i mean the um the entity itself the effect was created with a child spinning windmill toy that one of the producers just bought on santa monica beach mm. That's and then pointed school. a fan at old school special effects yeah, Absolutely, I think yeah. I had one of those from Blackpool, the the kind of shiny windmill thing. That you can't yeah. That you, yeah. It was it was literally just one of those. I mean, it um, might have cost them a whole five cents. <laughs> um, and the only other bit of trivia I've got left for this episode is that the original script had uh, Kang end his sort of final conversation with Kirk by telling him that he was worthy of being a Klingon, which mm. I honestly can't tell if it's supposed to be an insult or not. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. That, I, I love that they left it off on, you know, Kang slapping Kirk's back like he's his buddy, but it being so hard that he staggers a couple of feet, feet forward. Yeah. Like, that moment tells you more about Klingons than, like, any line of dialogue. Absolutely, yeah. But yeah, so 
that was Day of the Dove. Next episode is For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. And I'm going to address straight away the fact that at no point in either my note-taking for this or the description of this episode am I going to bother to type that out in full. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think un- until very, very recently, and I forget what dethroned it, um, it was the longest title of any Star Trek series and it wasn't close. It was certainly the longest title in the original series. I, obviously, I've not mm-hmm. seen any of the rest yet. But um, there's there's one in Discovery that is absurdly long. Is it something like for the for the lamb cares not for the the lamb's cry cares not for the butcher's knife or something yeah, on those lines? The butcher's yeah, knife like cares that. not for the lamb's cry. Right. Um, but yeah, this this was a slightly better episode. I think I I I preferred this one of the two. What did you guys really? think? Really? Um, yeah, I. I enjoyed this one. This is one of the ones that I saw um, when I was, uh, you know, maybe six, uh, and I and I saw on TV, and uh, you know, I had a very very vague understanding of what Star Trek was, uh, probably until I was about ten, and I got into TNG and I watched it voraciously. And so I remembered my first memories of the original series, which I don't think I really saw most of the original series until I was well into my late teens. Uh, My memories of the original series were of this very, very strange, um, somewhat trippy program. Um, And, you know, the fact that the first episodes I'd seen were things like The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky um, probably helped with that. It's a it's a strange episode. Um, there's, I mean, with 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 quite a lot of the seat of this tra- section of season three, um, there's a there's a, a, a very unusual sparse and, and spacey atmosphere. It's quite slow paced. Um, it's a little repetitive, um, and the the props. I think uh, are are especially interesting here. Um, They pray to a piece of medium density fiber board. um, A piece of medium density fiber board with the pitch down voice of James DeHaan. Yes. (laughs) Um, As go, it's not that impressive. No, again, you see the... um, the budget cuts happening here. I've got a couple of notes about that as well. The um, the book of the people that they obviously use to try and sort things out towards the end of the episode is the same prop as the Chicago Mobs of the Twenties book from the piece of the action episode. Um, which, which looks like it's in COD Korean. Yeah, it, it is. I that was one of the bits of trivia I found as well is that the all of the ancient Yunada language is is just Korean. Right. So I can't imagine how that plays over when they air that episode in Korea. I mean, probably they just think it's a good gag. Um, in in Return of the Jedi, uh, the the puppet who flies the Millennium Falcon with Lando Calrissian, um, they got uh, an art student to just to just give the dialogue in his own language, which is a fairly obscure Central African dialect but everything he said is in perfect context with the story uh and so return of the jedi wound up doing huge business there and in nine nub <laughs> was like a minor celebrity there for a while that's pretty that's pretty interesting. <laughs> so sci-fi is always sort of has always sort of gone to that well 
Uh, you know, with that in mind, then, uh, canonically, Spock speaks perfect Korean, or at least reads perfect Hangul, <laughs> because he picks up the book, um, comments on there being an index, looks up the index, and, and reads out loud from the book. At no I, point I, does he take out his tricorder, he just reads it straight out. Yeah, I thought it was impressive how he has a working knowledge of the vocabulary of languages of dead star systems. Like, when is he doing this? I am a graduate of Starfleet Academy. I know many <laughs> things. I understood that reference. <laughs> yeah. No, it is... Oh, I, I do think it's, it's unfortunate that um, lazy Spock writing means he basically is just filling in for the ship's computer. Like... <laughs> yeah, tell there, me there, that does happen a bit. <laughs> and You're the, the solution, I, 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 I actually, um, I, I don't have notes for uh, the world is hollow and I have touched the, but I have touched the sky. But uh, the instructions, if I remember rightly, are, are are just stupid. Like just press these two buttons here and turn the knob a little to the left. <laughs> it, it's it's, it's sure, like surely. That, yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, that's it's it's surely they could have got that from the tricorder or something. You, yeah, you think and so? I just you know I, I'm gonna I'm gonna buck uh, the uh, the opinions here, maybe even popular opinion. Uh, I don't like this episode much at all. I mean, maybe it's uh it's uh from from binging them, but it just felt to me like. It's kind of like one-third Spock's brain without the sexism and two-thirds Paradise Syndrome without the racism. And, like, that's good, but I also saw a bunch of these beats. It's a long overdue and rare showcase for McCoy. Um, but it's not a good plot that they gave him. Like, oh, I'm dying. Oh, no, I'm not dying. Oh, no, I'm is, not dying. is just, I, I do think, think, for episodes... I think that is... Part of the reason why I enjoyed this episode so much, though, is I think that, well, DeForest Kelly's delivery as a very lonely, dying man who's sort of having to come to terms with the fact that he's not going to exist for much longer, he nails the role. I mean, and McCoy is great, and I, and I do feel like um, there was subtext from, from one of the writers and in the writer's Bible that is never really called out. Um, more on that probably in a future episode, but where he had left behind uh, an estranged uh, ex-wife and daughter on Earth. Um, and I thought that that bitterness, that subtext, really kind of came through. Um, but but it, it wasn't enough for me. And you, you, you even mentioned this, but a recurring problem this season is there's just not enough story to fill the time. And these are long episodes. These are a full 50 minutes because they didn't show as many commercials back then. Um and that's not bad, but when you have a weak story, that's when you start to run into these pacing problems. This would be a really good animated series episodes, uh, episode. Mm. Um, I mean, that's a good point. It's not a lot. the The animated series just just kind of uh, embraces the weirdness of season three and turns it full tilt. Um, okay, I've just I've just spun a fan theory. <laughs> the animated series is series three, part two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Um, Again, that, that's uh, not a series that I've watched yet, so I'll have to sort of come back to that when I've seen it and see whether I agree I've, with I've you. Only, I've only seen a few of them myself, so I'm looking forward to it. The, I mean, it turns up the weirdness to 11. Um, there's not a huge amount of plot, but that's okay because it's only 20 minutes long. Now, if this episode yeah, were 20 minutes long and it had, you know, uh, and it had the freedom of animation to do what it wanted, it would be gold. I can agree with that. I think I think I can see that, yeah. But yeah, um, I don't have as much on the trivia side of this. Most of what I've written down, we've already touched on. Because it's um, boring. Because oh come on. Uh, the the one thing I did have is that um, that we again something that we touched on with the last episode with um, Day of the Dove. This episode yet again is full of recycled uh, footage and dialogue from Tholian Web. Mm -hmm. Um, well, not to mention both... Paradise Syndrome. They wrote the whole thing so they could use the asteroid shots again. That, that's a good point. I hadn't realized that. Well, it's it's it's, it's less clear. The remastered version fixed this because uh, everything is new and they made sure the two asteroids look different. But I don't know which idea came first, but they clearly were like, we're going to shoot some things with NCC-1701 and an asteroid and then get two episodes out of that. Right, that'll be why I didn't pick up on it then, because for these last few episodes I have been watching the remastered versions, just because I've not been feeling well and it's easier to put Netflix on than a DVD. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the one the one bit that I picked up on myself and that I had confirmed when I looked at the trivia sheet was that when Bones is being uh, punished for trying to contact the Enterprise, Kirk repeatedly says, Bones, what is it? Which is just whole cloth copied dialogue from the Tholian web. But he didn't. They didn't get him to. They they couldn't get him to say that line in a recording booth for that. They had to copy it from Tholian Web apparently. Well, this okay. So this is more of an intentional joke. But um, there's a beat in uh, Independence Day where uh, Jeff Goldblum's character says, "Must go faster, must go faster," um, and it's just taken whole cloth from his character in Jurassic Park saying the same thing must go faster must go faster <laughs> okay that's quite fun <laughs> but that's definitely more of an intentional gag just because it fits than uh, than cost saving i reckon um but yeah did, did either of you have any other points to make on that episode because i feel like we've not got as much to talk about on this one there's uh well like patrick i have to say because it's boring um there's like uh the uh, the whole idea of uh, bones's background and uh and wife and and daughter and so on we never actually get in in original series canon i don't think we ever get in um the the movie canon either there's um, a will... there's a strong allusion to it in the 2009 movie but that's as close as we get but what's unique is that it was well known in fanon for quite a long time like if you go and read the novels there's references to joanna his daughter, who was very, very nearly made an appearance in The Way to Eden, which we can talk about when we get there. My very favorite episode. <laughs> and, um, and she did show up in some of the comics as well, I think. I think I've seen some screenshots of them. Yeah, but it was all... It, so DC Fontana came up with it, and, you know, that carries some weight because she created Spock's backstory which was used in the animated series and which for 20 or 30 years was essentially the only canonical part of the animated series. That's how strong it was. Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, so that that was um, for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. I'm getting very tired of saying that all out loud. Um, Tholian web. This is an interesting one. I yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's about like we've talked about the budget problems, right? And like two out of three of third season episodes are really held back by these budget problems. But then every so often they come up with this mad idea that is justified by being easy to produce. And then it turns out to be really, really good. And I think that's Day of the Dove. And I think that's the Tholian Web. Yeah, the visuals of the Tholian Web are, uh, are really, really something else and really haunting. Um, and I can imagine that in the 60s when they're just, you know, well, they're only practical effects and there just wasn't anything else that was so consistently showing non-naturalistic things like Star Trek. Uh, you no know, Star Wars. At, uh, no, Star Wars, right. If you look Star at the Twilight Zone, um, you know, uh, the, there's, there's really nothing that has, has that very strong reliance on, on visual effects. And the Folian, the, the Folian uh, prop is, is something else. The Tholian puppet. It does um, look very good. And... Well, well, I was going to say, what struck me when I was watching the episode, because this is the first time I've seen it all the way through, I was very familiar with it because it's so baked into Star Trek canon and it gets referenced again and again, and primarily, though not entirely, because of the Tholians themselves. Um, and, like, let's recap. They're basically in this episode as a minor plot complication for... 10 minutes 15 at the outside and that's still more than they appear in any other series besides maybe a late episode of enterprise but they are such a presence in fandom mm -hmm. and in secondary work because of this incredibly compelling idea of these these non-humanoid life forms they can't exist in the same spaces um as most of our aliens at all um, they're territorial and they're punctual, but they clearly have this their own sort of code. Um, and they've got these unique ways of threatening you in space. And um, that's been the most enduring legacy of this episode, which is fascinating to me because I can't prove this, but I'd, I'd take a bet that it was like pitched and, and work on it started, you know, without even using the Tholians themselves. Then they call it the Tholian Web, but 90% of the episode is about, you know, Kirk is lost in interphase. Yeah, um, I mean, that is the main plot, right? Um, Kirk is lost in interphase. There's the conflict between, uh, between Spock and McCoy, and that, no doubt, was the original pitch. Um, but the Tholians, uh, they, they appear time and again. Um, there's mention of Tholian Silk, the Tholian Ambassador. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, over and over again. So they're one of those species, and there are actually a few of these, where they may not have much of a canonical um, appearance, but they just get re re repeat referred to over and over again. Um, like I'd, I'd put the Gorn in a similar category. Right. Uh, the Gorn are in one episode, and then they just show up again and again. Um, do we ever actually see the Zenkethi in canon? I don't think we do. No. Um... No. 
But we hear about them over and over again. Well, it's because in, in one episode, they were a plot device, but the plot nature of the plot device is this is a politically important species. But then, you know, they just left, let that be, whereas, you know, the novel universe has to actually build this world out. And they're like, oh, no, you know, we know these guys are something, and I guess they can be anything, so let's go for it. Um, the Tholians, Patrick made an interesting point about the... Uh, about the, the uh, urgency uh the punctuality of the tholians and i thought that was a, 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 a it's a it's a cliche we get in star trek um we will respect amity for one hour and 53 of your earth minutes and then afterwards we're, <laughs> uh afterwards we've been entirely patient and now we're going to condemn you to being trapped eternally in our energy field although something that that did confuse me about that and i don't know if i've potentially missed a line that sort of explained this away but that energy field takes a long time to build, and it does kind of seem like it requires whatever, whoever its victim is to just stay still and not fly off. Well, that's yeah, that's where the the seams show on the episode itself, it being it's sort of a plot device. Um, I know one of the novel authors justified it um, by doing a 24th century version of them, where they've improved their tractor field and they get it up in like a hot minute. Um, right. But but yes, that's I think. That's also one of the reasons why, aside from them not being humanoid, the Tholians don't get used that much in in canon, you know, aside from these cute little references, because it's like, uh, okay, they, they made a web once, now what do we do? <laughs> well, yeah, that was something that did surprise me as well, because obviously coming into Star Trek so recently and experiencing so much of pop culture around Star Trek before seeing it itself, I had obviously heard of the Tholians. What surprised me when doing the research for the trivia for this episode, as a physical, and like obviously you've said they they're mentioned a lot, but as a physical entity, they don't appear again until I think the last series of Enterprise. Yeah, that's objectively wild that you have already heard, that you had heard of the Tholians before you'd seen any Star Trek because they're so insignificant. <laughs> yeah, but somehow so prevalent. Yeah, but they're, uh, they they persist. I mean, the original series was on for uh, was was the only uh, only TV Star Trek that there was for twenty years, mm. um, and the amount of time the, the 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 fan community had to elaborate on mm. the original series is such a very small part of actual canon. I mean, there's there's you know compared to the rest of canon, there's there's well over a thousand episodes of Star Trek at this point. Um, of which less than 10% are the original series. Probably a lot yeah, it more. Has, it has that, that primacy bias, for sure. Um, and it's, to, to compare it with another uh, franchise of mine, um, you know, the Transformers, there's always going to be new Transformers stuff because it's for kids, but the well that they always go back to is that original series of cartoons and comics. The, um, I mean, the elaboration of Star Trek canon, if you read a lot of the early tie-in and non-canon stuff from the, from the 70s, it's very, very different to the, to the Star Trek universe that we've come to know. And mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me of, um, something I read once about what if Star Wars had just finished with the first film? Because mm -hmm. it's kind of it's it's filmed with a sense of, of you kind of come in media res to the middle of a 1930s serial, and you leave at the end. 
Um, and that, you know, the the idea, the 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 in the middle of a, a vast universe and just having a very tiny peek into it, element the original Star Wars film had, I think, is where Star Trek fandom was after the original series. Oh, so absolutely. I can, um, I can imagine wanting to fill out this world that, you know, where the Tholians are not even the most striking part of it. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, nobody mentions the Tholians, you know, and their difference and their strangeness in the episode itself. The, okay, these guys, these guys, their thing is they're going to spin up this massive energy field and trap you for eternity in it. Oh, no, ne uh, you just made me realize why there's a Tholian silk gag in Deep Space Nine, because they spun their web. Uh... Right, yeah, the, the, the thing is spiders. <laughs> yeah, the Tholians are just giant spiders, basically. Um, the thing is, it's uh, it's a strange that they never, you know, there, there's lots of uh, lots of things in Star Trek are like adjective from an alien race plus thing. Um, <laughs> you know, beehives and Alvanian. Um, a lot of them sound like Earth words. Alvanian beehive sounds an awful lot like just Albanian beehive. But presumably Alvanian Venezuelan beaver cheese. Right. Um, Tholian silk. So why did they never go for Kaitian uh, or Katian or whatever they're called? You know, hairballs or something. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but yeah, so I've just realised we've not been... Um, doing the sort of episode summary. Oh, we didn't recap we it. No, um, I mean, it, it's pretty It's pretty simple. It's, I mean, you, you mentioned already Kirk is lost in into space. The Tholians are pissed off that the Enterprise is there, and it's a race against time. That's pretty much the entire plot. Um, well, that, but then the interesting part is, it, I think it, it could only have come later in the series because it's so intensely conscious of the Kirk, Spock, McCoy dynamic. Yeah. And they've been separated before, but this time they really made an event out of it. Like, what if we have to continue our lives and our careers without without James Kirk? Are we going to be able to function? And really really finding the, the drama in that, and I think that, aside from having a weird incidental alien, is is what the takeaway is from, from this episode. Definitely, yeah. I mean, you've got the sort of... It almost appears as a B-plot, but it's really it's really integral to the main story of Kirk's final orders and Bones and Spock arguing with each other and sort of get very much getting in each other's faces and almost irate at each other. Oh, they're vicious, how... and they don't even have the excuse of a magic uh, rage monster this time. <laughs> exactly, no. But it, it, it does feel like... Despite that being the main um, beat of that ep uh, of, of that episode, they uh, they hurry it a lot. Um, so they have the shortest and most pointless memorial service in the in the middle of a space battle. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of uh, of Spock's. I've no time for anything. I've no time for anything. You've no time for anything. <laughs> Get down, lock yourself in your lab, McCoy. Get it sorted, get it sorted now. And yet, somehow, they decide to take that for a man who's been missing for a couple of hours. Um, <laughs> they have a, a memorial service for him 
which lasts maybe three minutes. But they assemble, you know, half the crew into this room. Um, Spock says, by the way, Kirk's dead. Uh, moment silence, please. Now go back to your to your work. That that seems well, that like was... an odd decision on Spock's part. <laughs> well, that was what well, something that I picked up on there. You mentioned about having half the crew there. This was, or at least as far as the trivia sheet I used to get the information for this is concerned, this was the biggest grouping of extras of any episode of the original series. This was the most of the crew we ever got to see. Oh, wow, I'm surprised considering it's season three. Well, no, but it was it was it was for a memorial service that lasted about twenty seconds. <laughs> it almost feels like a waste. They were presumably paying them on an hourly rate. <laughs> yeah. Um, something that I picked up on again with this one, as obviously a lot of this is my experience seeing it for the first time, and I'm potentially picking up on stuff that people have questioned or taken the mick out of for fifty years now. But um, <laughs> nonsense. There is a scene towards the beginning when they discover the Defiant. And they're sort of trying to work out what's going on. And Sulu asks, is there any... I think it was Sulu, it might have been Chekhov. Is there any record of starship mutinies on the record? And Spock's response is immediately, no. And he committed mutiny himself two years ago. Well, uh, why do you think he answered so quickly? (laughs) That is true. I think... There's chaos on on the Enterprise every few episodes, you know. So there's some sort of brain melting disease that gets everyone to freak out every few episodes. I I, I just want to say something about this. Um, That one of the first scenes is Chekhov um, randomly freaking out, and that's the the sign of the disease that McCoy has to cure. Uh, And we only get a couple of people who are actually affected by it. Um, But it does also feel that people freak out a lot in the original series. <laughs> yes. Yes, they do. The, the, yeah. That, I, I, I mean, think I, I, I understood the dramatic purpose, sort of, of that line as, as emphasizing, like, you know, okay, maybe in-universe, you know, this is really unheard of. <laughs> it's a shame that Nicolas Cage wasn't old enough. To... <laughs> oh, God. I'm just imagining it alternate universe where Nick Cage played Jim Kirk now. <laughs> um, this was, I according to the trivia sheet that I found, the, f- well, the Defiant in this, which was originally going to be called the, Sk- the Scimitar, and I don't know why they changed it, because that's a brilliant name. Mm. Um, but this is the fourth Constitution-class starship to be destroyed in the original series. And I've got to be beginning to wonder whether the Constitution-class starships are actually any fucking good. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna go so far as to say this is sort of a at least by the TNG era this was sort of a deliberate running gag that sister ships of the hero ship um, things don't go well for them um, and there's kind of a fan uh, a fandom or a sub fandom gag that the galaxy class is a Pinto um, because we see relatively fewer of them than Constitution class because not every uh, side starship is a galaxy class in TNG. But um, when you look at the the class overall, they tend to meet very spectacularly bad fates. Um, yeah. But, you know, the dramatic purpose of that is, you know, the Enterprise saves the day not because of its, you know, not because it's just an awesome ship, but because of its awesome captain, damn it. Well, I mean, you need to have an awesome captain and an awesome crew to prevent yourself from being prey to 
everything that befalls all the other Constitution-class mm. starships, all the other Galaxy-class starships. That Starfleet never learns certain lessons. <laughs> like, Which is actually a major theme of Lower Decks. Yeah. Um, oh. All the insane admirals. What? Why? Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. My my one my one last thing I'm going to comment on for this episode as being sort of a really good side issue or world building, much like the Tholians themselves. It's just kind of the idea that, um, all right, we're going to cure this based on this uh, chemical that's a Klingon nerve gas. It's like, by itself, that adds nothing, but it, it, it continually reestablishes this idea of, like, we've got this Klingon rival out there. And I, I just I appreciate that kind of that maturing of the of the of the universe. You know, it's it's no MCU, but um, you know, it's starting to pull in that direction. Yeah, and the original series did, especially in the first couple of series, shy away from referencing anything from any other episodes. So I think that's progress as far as the original series is concerned, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll move on to the next episode in just a moment. I'll just go through the odd bits of trivia that I didn't get to for this episode yet um, I, my notes for this episode, the very first note that I um, put down in full capital letters is James Duhan's hair is back to normal because god I hated his haircut for the beginning of series 3 um, this is the only episode in which Spock refers to McCoy as Bones um and this and Wink of an Eye were the most expensive episodes of Series 3, apparently. Mm. Which I'll touch on more when we get to Wink of an Eye, because that confuses me slightly. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I imagine for this one, the budget went to the web. Mm. Um, but yeah, so we'll move on. Plato's stepchildren. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this was certainly an episode. Uh, um... Yeah, I, I, I had a feeling I was in for a rough time. So this is another episode that I'm, I'm watching for the first time thanks to this podcast, which, again, I, I can't thank you enough for. Um, it's, it's good to have a, sort of a reason to do this archaeology. Um, but was was notorious, uh, certainly, in, in my dealings with the fandom in its own way. And I, I really resolved to, to come at it with an open mind, but... We start the episode with them beaming down to planet ancient Greece for the second time, at least. Uh, and then there's a confronted by a giant shadow, um, which is created by a little person who, for some reason, was hanging out around the corner, uh, who then proceeds to uh, explain the premise of the episode and drop the title all in the first two minutes. And I'm like, this is going to be a rough ride. Yeah, you can't stay mad at Alexander, though. He's brilliant. Yeah. Well, no. I, I'm, I'm mad at the writers, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I would actually like to, to, to praise Plato's stepchildren for a moment. Okay. Um, it isn't as bad as it could have been. Um, so Michael Dunn as Alexander is brilliant. Um, yeah, just absolutely. just just phenomenal all the way through, um, and there there are decisions that could have been taken. Um, the uh, writing 
the character of Alexander that they didn't do. Um, mm. Alexander was a, you know, for, for any kind of guest star um, in the original series, was very, very well fleshed out and, mm. and, and a very, very deep and likable guest character. Um, and there were some, some, some brilliant moments in it. Um, there was, uh, you know, the, the, the whole, Alexander's whole arc is great. Um, there is a moment where Kirk, um, I, I can't remember the exact conversation, but there has, there is a conversation that, that Alexander asks, um, Kirk and Spock and, uh, uh, and, and McCoy occasionally, um, about the world outside. And there is one moment where he asks, are there people... Um, without this power and, and, and who are my size outside. And, and there's genuinely a wonderful delivery from Shatner um, mm. of a line along the lines of, well, that, you know, outside um, where we come from, people don't worry about size or, or color or anything else uh, like that. Uh, and nobody has this power. And Which, especially for the 60s, was a, was a pretty progressive message to be saying oh we don't care if yes. you're different yeah absolutely um but we had two greek we've had two greeks so far and we've also had a romans and to be honest you know not knowing ancient greek and roman costumes as well as i'd like these look awfully roman costumes and they look awfully <laughs> roman costumes that were presumably just hanging about from another another show it's it's the Paramount backlot, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. I, I mean, sorry. Go on, Patrick. I was gonna say that, you know, we've talked about how the alternate Earths and in the you know the reuse of props you know ha is baked into the show for budget reasons. It's the only way they can put it on. Um, I also want to say again, in in the interest of praise, that this actually has some of my all-time favorite character beats from the main cast like they're fleeting they're very fleeting um but they're there um spock crushing the the prop while talking about how he has to express his emotions in his own way and the humans need to express it their own way um like i think i i read about that scene as a child and got chills like that's almost like a spock defining scene for me um so and i and um i you know i think my my problems with the episode you know sort of boil down to to two uh two quadrants uh one is kind of similar to what you were saying about the squire of gothos is that you understood why the villains were the way they were but you still just hated them so much yeah i, um, I did say that <laughs> And that's very much where I landed with most of the uh, Platonians. Mm -hmm. um, and my other problem, again, comes from the writing. Like, okay, there's a recognizable high concept here, you know, almost out of Stargate. Like, uh, aliens try to recreate Plato's Republic. But then it doesn't really have anything to do with Plato's Republic. And it's just this weird sadomasochistic showcase and then they resolve the plot halfway through Act 2 with a ridiculous device and then wait around for the rest of the show for it to kick in. Mm -hmm. And they, they allow... Uh, I mean, there, there is something about... The Platonians are 
probably the most loathsome villains in the entirety of the Star Trek universe. There are plenty more violent. Uh, there are plenty more aggressive villains. Um, the Cardassians spend decades oppressing an entire planet, for instance. But there's something that's viscerally wrong with how the Plutonians are. That yeah, it's you don't not really about see anywhere else. Yeah, it's not about scale. It's about you know you can how transparent they are with their with their sadism and how like they like they'll lie to Kirk's face and Kirk see through it and they and they just don't care. And then this... at, at the at the end of the show when the tables finally turn, you know they just are are dissembling. And, you know, Kirk sees right through them because they're always just going to say whatever gets them the most advantage in that situation. And that's why they do the only thing they can do. They leave and they take Alexander, the one decent one, with them. And they, you know, put up a little warning buoy somewhere saying, don't even get close to this planet. They suck. <laughs> I did find that, though, and in general... Kirk's treatment of Alexander as a whole, as much as it, Alexander has a brilliant arc and Kirk has some brilliant lines with him, it does feel a lot of the time like Kirk is looking at Alexander seeing short person and thinking child. There's a lot of quite infantilizing lines, I think, that sort of... It just comes across as, like, they were very much trying to be, we don't care if you're short, and it, it became kind of infantilizing, I think, at times. I, I am not going to hold that against this episode, believe it or not, because I think for the time, they handled that as well as it could have been handled between the writing and the acting and everything. I think that was yeah. as good as it was going to get in 1968. And that, they that, do, is, that is very true, yeah. They do make a good, a good job at depicting Alexander as a um, brutalized... Um, submissive, uh, anxious person who spent, uh, you know, two and a half thousand years um, being uh, be being victimized by these awful people. He's uh, an abuse victim, right? Um, and and he 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 has, uh, he you know he plays that very effectively, and I think that element is in in the character is written effectively. I do believe Alexander in some of the tie-in novels uh, actually gets his own character arc and, uh, you know, does productive and useful things and has a different power dynamic. Here, the dynamic is between Kirk and, um, and Alexander, which, you know, it, it, it has a, an element of patriarchy, I suppose, to it, mm. um, of, uh, of Kirk as a, as a kind of all-purpose saviour. Um, mm -hmm. it's Alexander. I think does have his own does start becoming the driver of his own story in some spin-off media, which I think he deserves. I'm just amazed there was any spin-offs made <laughs> off this episode. Likable character, yeah. horrible episode. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. The the this the 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 beats, as you say. Um, Plato, saying that their society is based on Plato seems to be very, very thin. Um, and there are some some notes that are just uh, inconsistent. They've built a perfect uh, species based on eugenics, uh, but that perfect species includes uh, having absolutely no resistance to disease, 
Uh, and if they're ill, it causes planetary scale poltergeist activity. <laughs> Great job. Yeah. yeah. I think, again, obviously, this is. I'm not as well versed on sort of Greek and Roman mythology and history, and I'm not super well versed on the concept of Platonian ethics, but the impression I got was that they took this basis of the sort of Platonian teachings and then because Platonian teachings, at least as far as this episode's writers were concerned, are so shit they just went off the rails and corrupted very quickly that was the sort of mm. impression I got from it Yeah, that's, that's clearly where the high concept lies, but they just didn't do the legwork they didn't they weren't specific enough about anything so the main thing they're borrowing from Plato is this idea, and Plato's Republic is a lot more detailed than this, uh, but it sets out an ideal society, and one of the criteria for an ideal society is that it's uh, based on this class of philosopher kings who are the smartest um, and are designed to be the smartest and, and uh, bred and, and uh, educated to be the smartest, and they're the ones who run everything. Um, and, well, I mean, there's lots of things wrong with that as a as an idea, but that's that's I think the only bit of of actual um, of Plato's actual writing that that is used in in how that society is designed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the impression I get, and again, this is from someone who doesn't know a lot about sort of Plato's Republic. The impression I got was that it was very much a hierarchy in the same sense that societies in general were hierarchical but very focused on a hierarchy of brains instead of brawn that's that's sort of which isn't necessarily any better <laughs> but um i think we should definitely touch on that scene from this episode which is uh, the, the obvious scene that everyone brings up when the when historically this relevant scene yeah. the historically relevant which According to the research I did today, not actually as historically relevant as people seem to think. Well, so, I, mean, I mean, yes and no. It's well. First of all, something's historically relevant if you think it's historically relevant. Well, yeah. Um, and you know, you might. It's not that you know people had never kissed on TV. It. Um, I don't know. All the, it, it may have been the first time in a scripted drama, or maybe there's another proviso. All I know is the executives were worried enough that they wanted to do two versions or they wanted to cover their bases like if they decided to cut it or if they decided to have a different version of it for the south um they made shatner and nichols uh shoot it you know with a with a real kiss and with a fake kiss and what was later discovered in the editing bay to nichols delight possibly the only time in her entire life that she was pleased with mr shatner uh was that <laughs> He had crossed his eyes or done something to render the fake kiss unusable. Yeah, he, he purposely tanked all of the scenes where they didn't kiss. which I, One of the few times where Shatner used his power for good, I think. <laughs> no, this was, this was something that I was going to touch on, though, that I, um, that I found when doing my research. Because obviously, this is often referred to as the first interracial kiss on American television. Um... The UK did interracial kissing, I think, 10, 15 years earlier on the BBC. I don't remember the exact scene. I'd recommend, if anyone is interested, listening to 
the I Quit Star Trek podcast episode on this because they touch on that there. Oh, sorry, um, the inverse of this podcast. Basically, yeah, and and probably most of the inspiration for this podcast as well. <laughs> I'm not ripping you off, I'm sorry. Um, uh, but it wasn't actually the first interracial kiss on US TV either because there was a, I believe it was a movie called Moving with Nancy in 1967 that had Nancy Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. kissing. So, as much as it obviously was very influential and very unique for its time, the sort of moniker that it's been given as that first interracial kiss on TV is not really true. Although, the other, um, the other interesting bit that I found about that, just going through my um, sort of trivia now a bit, uh, despite what I said about the BBC and UK television being more okay with sort of interracial contact in the 60s and having aired an interracial kiss in the 50s, in fact. Uh, this episode wasn't shown in the UK until 1993. Um, yeah, the, the empath, like it was, uh, the empath was the same, yeah. Anything, anything with the, the sadism. Yeah, they uh, just wouldn't show any. It's kind of ironic since y'all gave us James Bond. <laughs> yeah, well... James Bond is is MGM technically though, so it is an American production. Well, is I suppose Michelle Nichols' favourite episode of the original series. Um, she said that she was pleased that uh, her character could be a pivotal part of a of a plot and have a play a key role in the episode rather than just sort of being a side character. Yeah, she has a she has an, a real emotional beat here, and she she does in, in Tholian Web too, um, which is not to say that they're they're great parts, but I think the character really kind of hit a rut in season two, where she just wasn't doing much or adding to much, and it was just nice to see them incorporate her as part of the cast and incorporate her unique traits. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and she she also said um, in an interview she was that she was quite surprised that they received no negative letters from the interracial kiss scene hmm. at all apparently, which is astonishing to be honest. Uh, this is a, a, a fairly faint. There's a, a famous um, uh, not quite negative letter from a. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm familiar with this one. Uh, the, the, where, where a southern, an old southern man writes in and and uh, uh, and says, uh, when Kirk, a red-blooded man like Kirk, has a beautiful woman like Uhura in his arms, of course he's going to kiss her. Um, <laughs> which is so, which is so strange because it it kind of obscures the feature that it was forced, they yeah. weren't doing it willingly. Yeah, there's uh, there's so many layers, man. Yeah, um, it's, it's... but Nichelle Nichols had told that story again and again at, uh, at conventions and things like that, and so did Shatner, and uh, and that's, you know, it's kind of, even though it wasn't the first interracial kiss on American television, um, it's it's one of those legendary things that everyone knows about Star Trek, uh, yeah. and and that you know that scene and and the and the reaction and the and the letter. And everything else, and, and how Nichelle Nichols and William Shatner retold it, um, is is part of the broader culture. Even you know, um, yeah, for even for, for people who've never seen Star Trek. Yeah, for better and worse, I think that's their story to tell. They earned it. Yeah. I think 
be it obviously it's with it not being the first interracial kiss on American TV as people think what, what, with that being the case you could easily argue that it was probably one of the most if not the most influential interracial mm. kisses on American TV um, but yeah that was that was Plato's stepchildren I'm it was, it was it was an interesting episode um, but we'll move on to wink of an eye this this was a bizarre one yeah um, so as usual they uh, respond to a distress signal but this time the strange thing is that even though they're in the exact spot from which the distress signal was sent, uh, they can't seem to find the people who were broadcasting. Uh, and then a red shirt drinks water and disappears in a flash of light, which is another thing that's possibly not taken seriously enough by the cast. Um, yeah. And then they go no, back to Compton's the Enterprise. gone. Order up <laughs> another dozen red shirts. <laughs> and they go up to the Enterprise, and these strange things keep happening, and there's a strange device that appears tied into life support, and then Kirk disappears, and it turns out that they're all hyper-accelerated uh, people uh, who need to, who, who, let's just, let's just say it, they need aliens to breed with, um, and they're going yeah. to uh, take advantage of their hyper-accelerated powers to burn out the Enterprise crew one by one and sustain their species that way. Um, and then Kirk uh, honeypots himself long enough to stop everything. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's it's one of those plots where you, you have to wonder where, where this idea came from, because it, it's a very basic plot at the base level. It's once, you, once you've got the hyper-acceleration bit, the rest of the plot just sort of falls into place very mm. simply. But it's such a bizarre concept to just go, oh yeah, these are people who live in a fast, live at a faster speed. Well, it's another thing that like, okay, we can, we can do this in our budget, you know, we can, you know, just, because everybody's invisible if they're hyper accelerated and so we just shoot one thing and then the other. So they got this high concept idea that they could shoot inexpensively. Um, well, this is the thing though, this is what, what I was saying before about that really confuses me about this episode is this was one of the most expensive episodes of series three and if you think about it all you've really got is a couple of guest actors one set where the fountain is and then all the sets that they already had for the enterprise the map painting of the city is very nice it is yeah maybe mm. they spent all the budget on that and the, the i don't know the um the washing the tumble dryer hoses for the environmental machine <laughs> Tumble dryer hoses and a couple of pieces of medium density fiberboard, possibly rescued from the oracle of the for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky people. Yeah, so I wouldn't possibly. I wouldn't venture to guess how and why the money was being spent, because um, it did seem very much like uh, we'll let the limitations write the plot, and then this one didn't quite land as well for me. Um. um Eurovision costumes, though. Your what? Eurovision style costumes. Oh, you won't get that. Oh, oh. <laughs> Sorry, Pat. I, I know, I know of it, but uh, but not in as much detail as y'all know. Yeah, no. That just just be assured that that is a good joke, and don't Google Eurovision because <laughs> you don't want to see it. Okay, I trust you. Okay. Um, 
but yeah, I don't have many notes for this episode, I'll be honest. It, it feels like one of the episodes that blends more into the background. There's not a lot of trivia about it. There's mm. not a lot really to talk about. It feels to me like this... So so here's a, a concept, right? Um, Galaxy Quest plots. <laughs> Hypothetically, what are the, the episodes of Galaxy Quest? Well, we know there's one with a rock monster um, and, you know, making a slingshot to find its weak point or things like that. Um, we know there's one that involves trying to shut down something in engineering urgently and get past the, the <laughs> mashy spike plates. And there's definitely one about a hyper-accelerated time stream because it just feels like the most basic, that's a Star Trek plot, Star Trek plot. Um, yeah. Stuck in the holodeck, um, the, there's, one of the crew has been, du- has been duplicated or turned into a good, a good person and a bad person um, and a hyper-accelerated time stream. And it feels to me like it's been done dozens of times in Star Trek, even though I know that it's only ever been done one other time. It feels like it's been done dozens of times because it's so... Well, it's it one just of feels basic so... Things. Yeah, it, you it know, feels and, like one of the building blocks of Star Trek as a concept. And I do think that it, the visuals kind of fail the episode because when I, when I first read somewhere as a kid that, you know, Kirk takes on hyper-accelerated Skelosian aliens, I can't even tell you. I had a cool image in my mind. You know, they were like, like lizard people and they, you know, and they darted around. Um, and so I think the idea to just make them, you know, kind of obnoxious people who doomed their own society as usual, um, really holds this episode back because you don't even have a cool hook like with the Tholians. And there's not really any conflict among the crew to speak of, which of course is what really makes the Tholian web shine. It just kind of happens. I was going to say we also get the spectacle of, of, you know, DeForest Kelly and and Majel Barrett and so on gamely attempting to, uh, to pretend to be frozen in time. Uh, and you can see... Yeah, they're not very good at standing still, are they? You, you can see that the, the, they're all just, you know, um, moving very slightly slowly or, or, or attempting to stand still and failing. Um, Particularly, the... I think, Scotty, where he's entering mm-hmm. the, um, the, the transporter room, he wobbles a lot. Well, and, and be- better men than I have actually worked out the time scheme of this episode and how it makes no sense, because, like... Three or four major events occur in the real world while Scotty is trying is in slow motion. Oh yeah, but yeah. I I I I feel like we like we should cover the costumes, which I've alluded to previously. The the Eurovision outfits, the 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 costume design of of, of the original series has fascinated me because. There is that hallucinogenic property that the, to to a lot of the set design and the costume design of, of TNG that it's not mm. uh, of TOS that it's not meant to be realistic. There's a lot mm. of uh, you know wild color. Um, there's lots of purples and greens and so on. A lot of the rooms on the Enterprise are quite dark, uh, but with um, you know, aspect lighting of purple and, and blue and green. So everything looks like it's lit by a galaxy lamp. Um, and the costumes, you know, you see a lot of um, 
strange fabrics and voile and, and uh, reflective fabrics. The costumes in this episode, I, I don't know what they were going with. No, they don't seem to really tie into any kind of concept of what the Skalosians are like at all. Mm. It's just, we put fancy sheets of tinfoil on our characters for the sake of it. I did find myself having to explain uh, when my uh, my wife walked in on me watching this episode, which I, I, say, I say this way deliberately, I did find myself having to explain the uh, Thice titillation theory to her, uh, which... If you aren't familiar, uh, William Ware Thice, who was the uh, costume designer for the original series and for the first season only of Next Generation, uh, who I do believe was gay, I heard that, um, but his theory is that an outfit is on a woman is titillating in direct proportion to how much it appears to be in danger of slipping off. Right, okay. Yeah, they don't seem to have made half of um, the <laughs> dealer's costume. <laughs> just let, they just, ah, oh, that'll do. It's close enough. Pretty much. We can see half much. of that now. Pretty um, much. I, I'm just more thinking of her henchmen, um, who, uh, one of them looks a bit like Rocky Horror, um, <laughs> and the other one of them looks a bit like Graham Chapman dressed as Rocky Horror. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking, I can't remember for the life of me the comedian's name now, but there's a comedian, a, a trans comedian who is very sort of well known for for not sort of buying into stereotypes and still looking quite masculine whilst wearing a lot of makeup. Do you um, mean Eddie Izzard? And Izzard, that's the one, yeah, Eddie Izzard. Oh. Um, I thought that the sort of commander bloke in this episode looked a lot like Eddie Izzard at times. <laughs> Huh. And I don't, I don't know if that's just me, but I can see I mean, it might it. have because he had a lot of eyeliner on and stuff like that. Um, he also looks a little bit like the uh, like Patrick McGowan uh, in in the Prisoner. Right. As I say, these this is this, these are more uh, more shows that I've not watched and obviously need to get <laughs> around to need to get around to. But what we're learning here is that I'm uncultured. Nonsense. Nonsense. That's um, the, the spider device the, uh, on his neck. That's a strange thing. Yeah, those are odd. Uh, th those are kind of interesting, though, because it, you know, it was a different spin on the communicator. Yeah, that's true. It was, it was almost, in a way, sort of a... Not necessarily a precursor, but a... Mm, no, I, similar, I, thought, I thought that exactly. Sort of similar concept to the to the badge communicators from Next Generation onwards. Um. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's much else to say about Wing of the Night. It's a bizarre episode. I've only got really one piece of trivia in this one. It's not even really trivia. Um, at the end, when Kirk is sort of back in the normal timeline, he comes onto the bridge and immediately yells at Sulu to take the ship to Red Alert. For a good 20 seconds before he says that, the red alert has been sounding. So I'm not sure what what he was, like, confused about there. But they were Take it to red, red alert, alert again, Sulu! <laughs> take us to red alert, Sulu. We're, we're already at red alert, Kirk. Well, do, do it more! redder alert. Redder <laughs> alert. <laughs> no. um, and the other thing that confused me with this episode is... 
so they come up with this cure for the sort of hyperspeed, uh, whatever they call it, um, thing, and don't think about offering it to the Skolosians. Yeah, that was sort of like, yeah, well, you did it to yourselves. Like, I, I, like, yeah, like, I know they're, they're bad guys, and they're... No, but, no, 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 I, but I'm agreeing with you, it's, it's, it's a striking omission. Yeah, it's like, they're bad guys, but they're doing what they do out of necessity, not out of evil. Obviously, there's an element of evil in there with capturing ships and stuff, but like, it seems weird that because Kirk even says at some point, "Will you don't need to do this? We can put the finest minds of the Federation into finding a cure," and then they do find a cure and don't offer it to them. I mean, I think it might honestly just be like you know, I feel like there is a similar like end of episode carelessness in uh, in uh, in truth, no beauty. Where they're just like, by the time they're in that last scene in the transporter room, everyone was just trying to go home. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was Winky Fanari. We'll try and wrap this up because we are getting towards the sort of length of time that I wanted this to be finishing at. Um, but the final episode we need to talk about is The Empath. Now, this is one that going into this, I had heard a lot about and heard a lot of praise for. Hmm. And it was alright. I don't know if this is a controversial take, but I didn't think it was anything special. I I see that. So, I had seen this one before. I didn't remember all of the plot elements in, in detail. So, obviously, I watched it again. Um, and I read, uh, you know, I read the reviews on uh, Tor.com. And there was a really interesting... Um, discussion in the in the comments of that review which put a few things into focus um so i think it suffers very acutely from the third season problem of not enough story for our running time yeah but i think it's it's so well regarded maybe out of proportion although you know it's perfectly well produced and all for the ways it it codified and explored the Kirk, Spock, McCoy triad. Um, and it's really almost, someone was saying it, it's, it's, it's a, a, a proto-fanfic. Not that it was inspired by fans, or even particularly that it inspired fans, but that in retrospect many years later, uh, there are whole genres of fanfic that look a lot like The Empath. In that right. they put they put the main characters in a crucible, where they're being tormented, and what comes out is their love for each other. Yeah, I can see that. Um, if I remember rightly, this was uh, this was a, a, a spec script, uh, and the and the author was a fan, and perhaps mm. a less experienced writer of a fan. Yes, uh, and, I, I think I read that this was the first script she'd ever written. And this, this that it does feel like that in some sense. Uh, you know, uh, as Patrick was saying, there's a, an exploration of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Um, but as with um, you know other beats in Day of the Dove uh, that we've spoken of, and in the Tholian Web, there are elements of how Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are characterised that that feels like somebody who's been told how they're characterized mm. and is, is fulfilling that characterization um so so yes it does it does cover those relationships in detail um i well i don't know that it necessarily adds anything new it just stresses what we already know 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I... Sorry, go on. And it's another one of those Galaxy Quest plots, right? Um, there's there's going to be, even if you've never seen Star Trek... Ooh, ooh, title drop, title drop, so how about that? <laughs> oh, you yeah. could call us Plato's stepchildren. Um, the world is hollow and I have drop. touched the sky. <laughs> <laughs> if you've never seen Star Trek, the one of the things that you definitely know an episode of Star Trek is is that there's one where there's some aliens who decide to abduct somebody in order to test their moral worth um, and determine whether they're, they're you know, uh, whether they're, they're worthy of continuing to exist as a civilization and should be saved or not. I mean, how many species take it upon themselves to spend all of their time judging others and determining whether they're worthy of living or not? Uh, the Q certainly, the Organians, um, Trelane sort of does that. It's it, it, the Telosians, I guess, uh, have elements of that. It, it's it's it seems to be a a, a common occupation uh, of, um, of bored alien species. I that's not what I took from the Vians. Um, my understanding was that they were fellow inhabitants of this dying star system and they were going to rescue themselves or some element of themselves and they only had enough resources to to rescue one more uh, group which i think is 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 poignant enough if you accept that you know they that the acting isn't quite there to sell it but the idea that their torture um is not something that is something that repels them, but that they really do find it necessary. And it it predates, but it reminds me of a lot of the themes in uh, Arthur C. Clarke's 2010, where, um, you know, the, emphasizing that even the most advanced uh, alien intelligences are, are limited by, by resources in a very hostile universe. It's interesting you pick up that they were going, the Vians were going to save themselves and one other other species, because I think the actual phrasing was we only have the resources to save one species, and I read it slightly as that they didn't they weren't necessarily going to save themselves. They're going to save one of the I think they said ten civilizations on their planet. It was planet. something like that, yeah. Um, and they don't necessarily explicitly say, oh, and also us. Good point. Good point. Yeah, that's quite interesting. It's that that almost changes the dynamic of because cause the vines are always sort of that they're not villains as such. They're going about things the wrong way, but their end goal is a good one. They're characters from we are ju we are the judges of your people to we're trying to pick the best possible candidate for survival. Yeah, depending on, on what they say that you believe, because they're obviously very manipulative at the start, changes your perception of the episode because so much determines, so much revolves around are they cruel or not? Yeah, definitely, yeah. How many were they, how many of, uh, of gem species were they going to test? I mean, they had tubes with people in strange positions in them. 
Were they previous well, Did people? they have any other of her species, though? Because they had the two Enterprise crew members. Oh, sorry, not the Enterprise. The, um, the research station members. I think this is just a fill-in-your-imagination. Like, there's no... You have to come up with your... Your own assurance that what they were doing was in some way scientifically and morally sound, and that we only saw a small process of it. I think that's kind of, you take that on the same faith as, you know, these are advanced aliens who really know something about something. Yeah. Tesco value um, Telosians. Pretty much, yeah. Um, something that came up in my uh, research for this episode, and Patrick will be aware that I think at this point I need a, a buzzer that sounds, that um, just like a, an alarm blaring and then a computerized voice shouting the words Nomad Watch. Because not not Nomad specifically, but part of the prop that Nomad was built into for Spock's brain also shows up in this episode. So Nomad in Spock's brain was placed on sort of a, a, a tripe... Well, it was referred to as a tripodal device. Uh, the device in the middle of the Vines Laboratory is just that upside down. So it's, it's not quite Nomad, but given how many times <laughs> Nomad's come up in this series so far, and we're only on episode two... I felt we, I should probably bring that one up. Well, it's well, it's gonna. It, it you're not gonna be able to keep going back to this well for too long, but I do appreciate no. it. The um, um I I was reading uh about I, I I can't remember what source I read this from whether this was from, um, uh Keith R A D Candido's review or from Memory Alpha or whatever. Um, but the the sofa that they're on for most of the uh, of the episode is the exact same shape uh, and design as the agonizer from Mirror Mirror. It is the same prop. I found that on on the fact sheet I saw. It's not the same prop. Um, it's the it's the handheld agonizer that it looks like, not the um, not oh, the, sorry, the tube no, agonizer. Yeah. So so they for, for whatever reason. They built the agonizer handheld devices, and they built a couch that looks almost exactly like a massive version of the agonizer device. Yeah, what I was what I was thinking, I did get that mixed up. You're right. It's the same prop that they also use in Spock's brain, apparently. So that's what I was getting confused with there. Look, the vines work in mysterious ways. It's true. Um. Yeah, I've got a couple of bits of trivia for this episode. Um, DeForest Kelly said that this was his fa favourite episode of the original series, which I'm sure. <laughs> I don't. It's 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 a fine episode. I, I'm not sure what. I appreciate his moment with Spock quite a bit. Yeah. That is that is that is a great scene. I'll admit. Um, and the only other bit of trivia I've got here. Um, obviously, we mentioned before that this was an we mentioned before that this was another episode that was skipped over by the BBC because of the sort of sadistic scenes in it. Um, the only other bit of trivia I've got is that the scene where uh, Jem absorbs the boils and that off of Bones's body, only two or three seconds long in the episode, took them eight hours to film. And Catherine Hayes, the actress who played Jem, had to be strapped down for the entire time because so so, they effectively did a time lapse of it. Yeah, because and they needed her not to move. 
So she was just strapped to a table for eight hours as they slowly applied makeup to her. Yep. Which is... Which is why, to this, to this day, to this day, if you complain about CG uh, replacing practical effects, she manifests and slaps you in the mouth. <laughs> and I don't blame her at all. And doesn't say a word while doing it. <laughs> no, no, of course. Um, I, there was something I did want to cover with this one, which is that, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, um, I think we all discussed earlier about how uh, there was an element of infantilization to Alexander and Kirk's interactions. Um, I do yeah. feel there's a level of infantilization with, with Jem. Um, you know, there, there was obviously a dramatic reason for her never to speak, and the actress does, does a wonderful job of communicating uh, emotions and ideas non-verbally. Um, Absolutely, yeah. But, but there is an element which she's a very passive character. Um, Jem has every decision made for her um and uh you know she there are a couple of pivotal decisions that she makes but uh but she she mostly feels like a prop as the uh, as much as, as a character because the focus is on um the interactions to, between kirk spock and mccoy and there are elements of that that make that make the the whole set piece feel a little uncomfortable mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, do I, see that. I, I agree. I, the intent is obviously to express that she has an alien intelligence and way of interacting, but the thought was not mature enough. So it seems like we're gonna teach a mute person to have to be good. <laughs> so yeah, that was the empath, um, and that's that's the six episodes that we have to cover this week. Oh, hey. Um, <laughs> something, that I think, <laughs> something that I think I'd quite like to make is, we touched on slightly in the first episode of this podcast I'd quite like to make sort of a regular occurrence going forward is at the end of the episode going around one at a time and saying what our favourite and least favourite episodes from this batch were so um, Wolf do you want to go first? Uh, Day of the Dove is uh, my favourite from this batch oh least favourite um, there's so many to choose from um, <laughs> I think for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky is the is the most dull of of all of them, um, and Plato's stepchildren is the most upsetting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Patrick, what about you? Uh, Day of the Dove favorite, um, and. You know, I, I really want to say Plato's stepchildren, but, you know, there's at least a moment or two that we discussed that I think I think gives it value for me. So I'm going to go with, with Wink of an Eye, which somehow, it, you know, every word of its, like, one-sentence synopsis suggests something cooler than what we actually got. Yeah, I, def I definitely agree with that. I think... Just to make this interesting, I think I've got to go for something other than Day of the Dove now. Um, <laughs> um, honestly, I think it's very close. It's very closely tied between Day of the Dove and Tholian Web as well. Mm. Is one that definitely. I think I tend to because I don't have the best memory. I tend to sort of think of of how 
so how good an episode is by how much of it I remember. <laughs> um, that is completely fair. Don't let anyone um, tell you different. No, and Tholi and Webb is a very memorable episode to me, even if not just for the, I would argue, at least up to this point, best special effects mm. of the original series up to this point, being the web itself. In terms of least favourite, I think I'd probably have to agree with Patrick and go with Wink of an Eye. Um, I quite I quite liked World is Hollow. I, d- it, I can understand the criticisms of it, and I get that people see it as boring, but I find it, it's quite comfortable, I think. And I do love DeForest Kelly's performance in it. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that was um, that was a hopefully shorter episode than last week of the Never Seen Trek podcast. Um, Wolf, do you want to plug your socials or any projects that you work on? Nah, I'm not really doing anything. I thought I might live tweet uh, Crown Court um, at some point. Never Seen Crown Court. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll keep an eye out for that if you do, and I'll, I'll make sure to retweet it Thank if you, you do. Uh, but until then, and until the next episode, I've been Sam, or never seen track on Twitter. Um, Patrick and Gears42 on Twitter. And I've been Wolf, or Mr. The Saint, on Twitter. And that's been episode two of the Never Seen Track podcast. We'll see you next week.